Forrest Gump. It's come to this. Now, I'm not going to argue whether this is a war film. Let's take it as read. I'm not even going to use this intro as a chance to dump on baby boomers because I'm confident that history will handle that task and there's no point in us piling on. No, what amazes me about this film, this Forrest Gump, is how big a movie it was. Like American Beauty, this movie inexplicably took the world by storm. Why are the middle-brow people of the world so susceptible to this trash? What collective need is fulfilled by languishing in this miasma of toxic sentimentality? Well, let's interrogate it. Here we have a film where a disability was played for laughs. Gump's slowness is meant to stand in for our simpler natures, untrammeled and untroubled by irony or sex or remorse or really any kind of human empathy beyond confused sadness that everyone isn't happy. It's a Vietnam story, tragic in the way we prefer our Vietnam stories, which is to say, small-scale and personal. We're fine watching some boys slug it out, even fine ruining the senselessness of it all, but for the love of God, don't make us think about what we did and what it means. Please, can we just take a dumb giggle ride through a Newsweek highlights timeline of the boomer half-century and conclude that it was just troubling enough to make us deep and soulful without convicting us of mind crimes and the rape of the world. Damn it, I was trying not to slam the boomers, but I can't help it. This movie marks the true turning point in their evolution, where they finally renounced the counterculture and regained their innocence in the form of the true anti-hero, shrimp millionaire and early Apple investor, the Gumpster, the Gumpmeister, the Gumpinator. It's appalling, really, this Clinton-era revisionism. As if after two decades of gross reveling in the reflected cool of Hendrix and Abby Hoffman, while force-feeding the rest of us the hot-dog-eating contest of 60s self-aggrandizement and ad nauseum nostalgia masked as virtue-hectoring, set to a never-ending loop of Jefferson Airplane and slow-motion helicopters, the boomers sat atop their pile of laissez-faire Michael Milken dollars and drug-war-financed Arizona-planned communities and gloated that all along they knew the hippie element within them were contemptible dirtbags and it was actually free enterprise and global trade that were the realm of the saints. Who better than Tom Hanks, eternal boy, bosom buddy, to reprise his role in Big and Assuage, the last faint bleats of the dying conscience of a nation. The only thing this movie didn't do is have Forrest sign a contract with America and date Fawn Hall. I said I wasn't going to argue, but who cares? Is Forrest Gump a war movie? I don't know, man. I guess so. There's war in it and war reverberates throughout it, and even though it's a little late to the 80s cinematic refight Vietnam party, it refought Vietnam on behalf of an American people who still couldn't figure out what happened there or whether we won or lost. Well, let me tell you, we lost, and we also lost the supposed culture wars where we overturned the hegemony of the greatest generation and replaced it with sexual freedom and drug experimentation and peace and love and environmentalism and communitarianism and agrarianism and anti-industrialization and global peace. What the boomers brought us instead in the fullness of time was a focus on low interest rates and the dismantling of the social safety net and neoconservative endless boundless war. Q. Jefferson Starship. Today on Friendly Fire... Life is not a goddamn box of chocolates as we explore Forrest Gump. Why? <laughs>
Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that's less an exploration of history through the cinema of war than a peen to the most important members of our society, the baby boom generation. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. A peen, huh? Mm-hmm. It's one of those uh, three vowels in a row words. Very scary to pronounce. I always pronounced it pain or a, a peen or a pain. Paying, a paying. Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to stand by my pronunciation. I looked it up on one of those YouTube how to pronounce uh, channels, yeah. but it was a robot saying it, so I don't know Pain. why I would believe the robot. Peen. <laughs> peen. I can tell you've got some peen envy. I've got some pain envy. I watched this film on an airplane. Just and, recently? Did you cry? And I just want to paint the picture... Of a full-grown man boarding an aircraft in 2019, choosing to watch Forrest Gump of all of the of all of the in-flight movies. I don't know what I must have looked like to the person sitting next to me, but I know had I been them, I would have been very suspicious of me. Yeah, what kind Who of person? Who chooses to watch this movie is a question I would love to interrogate. This is this movie was such a big deal when it came out yeah massive and there's a certain kind of person for whom a movie that was a big deal never stops being a big deal that's fair what kind of person i don't know not the kind of person that adam is i mean there there are people whose engagement to film uh begins and ends with uh me and my wife like watching all of the oscar winning films right right like that is that is how i enjoy film i love tom hanks movies right yeah that is a type of person and there are probably many yeah I am not the audience for this movie, unfortunately. <laughs> when it came out in 1994, I was in the waning days of my drug years, and I did not have money to or interest in going to see Hollywood films. I was busy sleeping on dirty, sheetless mattresses with punk rock girls uh-huh. and trying to die. You didn't have uh, you didn't have disposable income to see Robert Zemeckis knob up the no. baby boom. No, and I remember the hullabaloo because I even in my worst hour I still read the newspaper. But uh, I didn't see it until many years later. But I think still within the VHS era, and I remember watching it and going and just shrugging a big shrug. <laughs> but watching it this time, boy. What a slog. This this movie won the Leone d'Oro at the Venice International Film Festival yeah. that year, you know. Just okay. like Lebanon. Just like the movie Lebanon, which I panned, and I'm starting to believe <laughs> no, that the Leone d'Oro... I made that up. I'm, I'm, making a, I'm making a joke about my own self, John. You're so fucking defensive. You can't, you can't yes and a silly joke. Now, wait a minute. Who's defensive in this, uh, in this little exchange? I'm, I'm making a joke at my own expense, so not me. Okay, settle, settle down. Boy, settle I should down. have known okay. that the <laughs> Forrest okay. Gump episode would be the most argumentative yeah, show that we've is, ever done. This is the one. <laughs> I remember seeing that being taken to the theater to watch this film, like me and my family by, watched by it. By your grandma? Yeah. Who was watching you after your parents went out drinking? But when you talk about the idea, like I think a lot like music does I think films can sometimes have long tails and the longest tail attached to Forrest Gump was its soundtrack. Right. 12 million copies the soundtrack sold. I had it. 
Everyone wow. I know had it. It's massive, and it's a total big chill soundtrack. Yeah, it's just it's just yuppie music from start to finish. It was one of the one of the ones that had the two case thick jewel yeah. situation, which was <laughs> thick jewel. That's my favorite jewel. Yeah. It was always in a case logic phone book sized CD case. Like you could always find the Forrest Gump discs in there. But, you know, at the time, I really liked listening to the music of it. But watching the film again now, there's a lot that's cloying about this film. But I think the thing that I enjoy the least in any film or television is a music choice made that uh, is so closely expressing the feelings or the activities happening in a scene that it just fucking clangs. Like, when the lyrics of a song are describing what you're seeing on film, I think that is a total waste of an interesting choice because you can make a choice about the music playing in a scene and really say something uh, strange and interesting, but at no point does Robert Zemeckis do this. He almost uses the music as a narrator to the film. He's using the music the same way the narration works, which is that the narration is almost always leading into an anecdote, quoting the anecdote, and then you see the thing it quoted. Right. I don't want to hear running on empty as Forrest is running across the country. How do you feel about uh, Fortunate Son while... Uh, helicopters land in Vietnam. Legally, <laughs> Zemeckis had to do that, so I understand. Yeah. What's yeah. interesting about the soundtrack is that the whole first act of the film, which takes place in the 50s, there is no music. We only hear Elvis through the television at one point. No, None of the scenes are scored with, um, you know, with early rock and roll. It's only when Gump first arrives in Vietnam... That, that we see that corny scene or what, and I don't even remember whether it was fortunate son, although that does play in this movie at some point. Yeah. But from that moment on, from Vietnam on, it's just one hit of the sixties and seventies after another, all of them super duper right down center plate boomer culture. And it's cloying. It's manipulative. It's cheap heat. And I can't believe in 1994 that it was still, by even by 94, Fortunate Son with helicopters and the sun setting in the background was cliche on top of cliche. And how that, how that went by, how that won a bunch of Oscars. In 1994, did people still not have access to Credence? <laughs> I mean, why would they? Why would you buy 12 million copies of this? I'm not saying one boomer did it, but you know everybody had a copy of this film. It's one of the best selling records of all time. Yeah, and you what? You can't find freaking credence and the doors some other place. I don't. I barely remember 1994, but I remember there was other stuff going on. I bought this soundtrack before I bought Chronicle. Like this was the gateway wow. to that. Heavy man. Right? I wonder Whoa. if there is a way to make a movie that panders as hard to uh, to Gen X or to the millennial generation as this one does to boomers. Well the thing about Generation X, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna be your Gen X guide through this. John Roderick, Gen X Sherpa. The thing about Generation <laughs> Generation X is that we did not have a high opinion of ourselves. Like Generation X that always- That makes you very different from boomers. It does. And millennials, frankly. 
Uh, Boomers can have an IQ of 75 and think they're the best. Yeah, the best, right. I mean, we <laughs> the gener- Generation X never had any um, illusions about the fact that we were losers. We were coming into a world that had been used up, and all that was left for us was sucking fumes. And the fumes of the baby boomers. The baby boomers, in you know, still think that they're the greatest thing that ever walked the earth, and they really did in 94. They really, really, if you challenge them at all, they would talk about all the things they had done. And as though they invented the civil rights movement, as though they invented the anti-war movement, as though those things didn't exist in 1935, which they did in 1955, which they did. So the boomers took credit for everything, and they made the world a... They, they took they took the oxygen out of the world and celebrated themselves so highly, you know, just like and watching it as a Generation X person. When this movie came out, all we were the youth, right? Generation X was the sardonic youth. And watching this win Oscars at the time, it just felt like. Did you guys not get enough? Have you not? I mean, <laughs> we're having grunge right now. Like we're we're in the mid, we're in the thick of it, man. Do you yeah. really need to to create this anaerobic environment? And they did, and they can you know they continued to do it until until they until they lost their hearing, basically, which is now and thank God. <laughs> but but the, you know their children now are sucking all the air out of the room too. Yeah. I saw this movie as an 11-year-old sitting between my mom and dad in the movie theater, and I remember it being incredibly meaningful to them. Yeah. But I guess I was too young to, like, the meaningfulness of it seemed to connote importance on it to me. And and rewatching it now, I just, uh, I had such a radically different reaction. And I hadn't really seen it since it came out. How does 35-year-old Ben uh, uh, see it? Like Adam said, it is such cheap heat that I'm just, I'm almost blown away that the movie going public didn't just universally react against it as such a brazen pander that it's not actually worthy of viewing, you know? Like, when was the last time Tom Hanks got a negative review for starring in a film? I almost wonder if it's if it's the magic of of the Hanks effect. Like, does that insulate your film from the kind of criticism we're giving this? I mean, it's not just Hanks, right? It's a it's a morality play that if you are bad, then bad things will happen. And if you are a perpetual child with an innocent viewpoint, um, that you will become rich and famous. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and that's a that is a crazy, crazy message. And Tom, you know, Tom Hanks had just been in big a few years before. I mean, not everyone can do it, though, because Sean Penn tried to do it in I Am Sam, but he couldn't save that film. Like, it's not just the it's not just the performance in a lead role as someone who lives the way that a Forrest Gump does or or Sam from I Am Sam does. I really I feel like it's specifically Tom Hanks. Well, I don't know. Leonard DiCaprio. or uh, uh, I like your first pronunciation. <laughs> Le- Leonard DiCaprio was, he played that uh, character in Gilbert Grape. Gilbert yeah. Grape. Yeah. And that made his career, right? Yeah. And, and Rain Man, Dustin Hoffman finally got his big. God, this is a tough film paper to write. 
I'm, I'm I might just crumple it up and write it about is this, something is this else. Printer jammed. What the hell? <laughs> Thing is lucky I'm not armed. I got to page three and now yeah. I'm stuck. Piece of shit. You you threw a thesis out there and it's yeah. Hmm. I think that Tropic Thunder already wrote this film paper. Adam. <laughs> well put. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other side of the coin for Jenny being you know the counter example of of how to live your life is that like when Forrest Gump is describing like early family history it's like yeah i'm named after the the like grand wizard of the kkk and that's just kind of like <laughs> that's tossed off as like a harmless and somewhat charming element of his family history if you saw me on the airplane ben you would have seen me like I basically popped up out of my seat, like grabbed the iPad. I was trying to turn you it put around. Your pe- I peachy for- folder in front of the screen. I completely <laughs> forgot that that was a part of this movie. And there are, there is a too. not insignificant uh, amount of Ku Klux Klan footage in it. Right. It's like you were yeah. watching a birth of a nation yeah. on your, on the flight. <laughs> it's actually the footage. The footage is from birth of a nation. That's they CG'd uh, Tom Hanks into birth of a nation. One thing I want to say while we're talking about watching this on an airplane is I watched it uh, on the seat back. I did not watch this on my own device. How, how do you do that? It was available in the in the catalog of films. You are joking. Yeah. You, yeah. You're on Delta, you can just scroll through and be like, you know what? I, Forrest Gump. Yeah. How fortunate for you that you got I this. I thought it would be an interesting experiment to watch it on the seat back. Like, how is this different? I have a I have a higher medallion status, so they don't give us those <laughs> kinds of movies in, in my seat. Yeah, this was a this is a comfort plus movie selection. And uh it was in four by three aspect ratio. Oh wow. Which was not ideal. But also um Edited for profanity in a very interesting way. Uh, the God part of God damn was edited out, but every utterance of the N word was left in. Interesting. There was definitely that moment when, like, I remember hearing an NPR story about the N word entering into the list of, of bad words, like from a, an FCC standpoint or whatever. Yeah, no, that's that's extremely recent. And I think in 1994, that would have been considered, I think, maybe even all the way to progressive. Like, we're not afraid to show the dirty history. We're, you know, we're going to confront this head on by, yeah. by uh, putting it into mainstream films rather than censuring it. And I think the, I think the, Ku Klux Klan played for comedy also maybe right. felt like it was it was a way of indicating that this film was smarter than your average bear by 1994 standards. I was reading that the uh, uh, edited for TV version of this movie when the school principal bangs his mom they had a whole different audio track for how for how the moaning sounded. Oh. What did it sound like in the in the other monitor? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm wondering if that's the version Adam got. Cause, I feel like the sex scenes kinda... in MacGruber were inspired by the version that I watched. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it sounded a lot like that to me. <laughs> what does that sound like? <laughs> Rob will drop it in. <laughs> <laughs> what? Who is this movie for? It really is for baby boomers, but what is this movie for? Like, what 
does it do? The book that it was based on sounds pretty interesting, and there are parts of the book that go a lot darker than this film. This film basically takes the first third and the last fifth of the book, but there is like a meaty center of the book that is dark Hmm. and bad and weird. Dark, meaty center. That I would have liked to have seen uh, on film, as it is. Its attempt to appeal to the broadest audience that it could get just smears it with this veneer that makes it hard to palette right now. It's so it's so naked in that attempt for '94 that you could. I just don't feel like you could make this movie right now in the same way, right? We're too sophisticated or cynical. I, well, I don't. You couldn't make this movie now, but could you make a movie that was this bald? I don't know. I mean, the Tom, the the scene where he wins the Medal of Honor. I'd kind of like to see that for going back and carrying his dudes out. It's Desmond Doss. It's Desmond right? Doss. Like, what if you made Forrest Gump more like Hacksaw Ridge? That's a hell of a combination. <laughs> you could probably do it like that. Like Jenny goes and kills her dad. That's that would have to happen in 2019. Why didn't Jenny? kill her dad why wasn't she driving that bulldozer and the dad was in the house why didn't Forrest kill the dad right Right? if Forrest is mentally challenged to the degree that he doesn't know the consequences he should have lenied the shit out of him right because he fights everybody that comes after Jenny in this film yeah and uh yeah what the he should have lenied him he should have put him in his pocket and stroked him until (laughs) he died uh, Zemeckis also did uh, Back to the Future. And when Forrest kicks the ass of that guy that Jenny's dating, that's straight out of George McFly punching Biff in the face when he's all over Lorraine in the back of, of that car. Right. Right. Like, there seems to be a playbook that Zemeckis has that he's returning to here. There was a lot of criticism at the time that this movie advanced a conservative worldview. Yeah. Right? That the hippies, like the head of the the students for the democratic society is uh, misogynist uh, and, and beats Jenny. The black Panthers are basically cartoons, cartoons of black Panthers. Uh, the Abby Hoffman character is, is portrayed as kind of a, uh, exploitative dummy. And again, Jenny's character arc takes her through almost every kind of alternative culture there was between 65 and 75. And she gets the she gets the losing end of everything. And Zemeckis responded to that criticism, saying, "No, it's just you know, like Gump has no politics, but the movie has politics." Yeah, and I think it's crucial to remember that in every scene where Jenny chooses a form of counterculture, she's leaving physically forest and mainstream culture she's always getting into a cab or getting into a vw bus like she's driving away from the center of our film that's like made into a thing right and she's running and she's apparent you know she's running from her childhood who's actually running colon forest versus jenny in the movie forest gump there's the title thank you there's there's the paper paper. oh oh i'm so tired oh i'm 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 grateful It does also like lick the asshole of the 1950s Ouch. as like the best time. Wow, grody. That was a time without Toto Washlet, so not a pleasant experience. <laughs> but the thing is, we watch the three dudes, the three 
uh, guys who are sitting in the barber shop throughout the film who we're given a picture of them at the beginning as sort of they're not quite mock they when Forrest walks past them in his in his leg braces Sally Field challenges them and says what you never saw a little boy in braces before but the old men didn't actually say anything they never say a word in the film they're they're there as proxies for small town Alabama uh, like white dudes sitting around a barbershop, but they never say anything racist. They just, they're there only for like spit take. They keep watching Forrest do crazy things, but they never actually say anything. That boy sure is a running fool. Small town Alabama is portrayed, as you say, Ben, as sort of an idyllic 50s environment, but we know it to be the wellspring of all the. I mean, we see we see George Wallace. Forrest happens to be like photo right. photo bombing George Wallace, but we don't see him coming from that Alabama, really. Well, there's no racism in the film till we get to that George Wallace character, and the blacks that are in Forrest's life when he's young really seem like super happy with their lot in life. I didn't remember this the whole George Wallace arc. Uh, from you know when I saw this movie back when it came out, when he like picks up the notebook and hands it to the to the girl and it's caught on camera, it cuts to the football team coach and like all the all the assistant coaches like watching and glowering Bear Bryant about that in the locker room, and you think that that's going to then like cause a negative right like like they all ostracize Forrest or something, but. It's just like it's just a moment. It, they they scowl at him and then it's over. You know what they care about winning more, Ben. That's right. But like this movie goes so far to trivialize what the what the civil rights movement was about. It whitewashes it all. Yeah. It almost treats moments in history the way a Wayans Brothers spoof film treats its original source material. Is this in the is this in the film paper? Because I like it. You know what I mean? Like it's it's trading on familiarity instead of truth. Like, oh, I remember that moment of the civil rights movement. Yeah, yeah right. I remember that speech at the Mall of Washington. Like I I remember that, so I recognize it, but I'm given this new twist. My memory of of the way this film was talked about in the newspapers in 94, but also when I watched it in probably 98. My memory was that Forrest's cameos in all those scenes, he somehow intervened in history and played a pivotal role in those moments. I don't, I don't know where I got that, but, yeah. I, but I had this sense that it was like, oh, if it weren't for Forrest, there never would have been a civil rights bill. Yeah. But it turns out that in most of those films, Forrest is just there. He just meets Kennedy. Uh, if, it, if it weren't for Forrest, there would never have been a shit happens bumper sticker. Right, but. because there are those moments, right? He invented Elvis's dance. He invented, the, invented right. the smiley face t-shirt and the shit happens bumper sticker. But his meetings with Kennedy and Johnson and, uh, and Wallace, those are just, they're just photo bombs. At the time, right. the effects of those scenes were celebrated and awarded, but now it looks like a Robert Smigel, uh, Conan O'Brien. Yeah, right. Bit. Where the where the With lips the, are just yeah. like blah blah blah. blah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh no! He also take Forrest takes credit for. I mean, you know, the film gives him credit for writing John Lennon's Imagine. Yeah, right. Which is another one where you're just like, yeah, that was sure. D 
deep fakes uh, have really come a long way. They really have. Uh, there was a sequel written to this film by the book's author that was in pre-production for a little bit, and then 9-11 happened, and then it went away forever. But the sequel to the film was going to be the inverse of this, in that Forrest was proximate to bad things that happened over the course of the next 40 years after this film. Oh, yeah. And what an interesting, like, dark mirror image of, like, I wonder if that would have changed how we feel about this film to get a sequel that, that... was its counterpoint in such a literal way. The crazy thing about that sequel script, so Tom Hanks did a thing that Donald Sutherland should have done with Animal House. Do you remember that story? When they were making Animal House, they didn't have a ton of money, and they offered Donald Sutherland either, you know, scale, $25,000 or something, or a percentage of the film, and Sutherland took the money. And if you do the calculation, if he had taken a percentage of Animal House, he would have made $30 million or something from it. So instead of doing fourth sequel to Body Snatchers movies like he's had to do, he would have been uh, (laughs) making better choices. So Hanks took no money for Gump. He took a percentage of the film. Oh, and he's smart. He took, and this is for all you listening out there, if you ever get this opportunity, he took a percentage of gross which meant that he wow. got $40 million for this film. Do you know how much the author of the book made? $350,000 yeah. because he he took a percentage of net. And this movie is one of the legendary films that even though it like made $900 million or whatever, uh, they used Hollywood bookkeeping on it. And uh, and it actually registered as a loss for Paramount. So brutal. So he sued them. And the negotiation, Paramount couldn't pay him more. Otherwise, their phony accounting would be exposed. So what they did was they bought the script for the sequel from him for some undisclosed millions of dollars yeah. as, a, as a workaround, as a reach around. <laughs> This is why writers strike and unionize. Stories like this, they're always getting screwed. Never take a portion of net. Yeah. Always take a portion. I can portion never of remember the difference between net and gross. And and yet you've got the pronunciation of peen fairly confident. Mm. I didn't say that I stood by that pronunciation. I said that I got it from a robot. I just want to say how grateful I feel to be in a business partnership with Ben Harrison. <laughs> <laughs> hey Adam, I, I signed a deal. Uh, I, I I went with net. I it couldn't remember. Great. Yeah, I couldn't remember what it was. Net but, catches more money, right? Yeah, Gross exactly. sounds bad. Nothing but net. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talking about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. 
Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. <gasps> yeah. Gentlemen, this is a war movie podcast, and this... This uh, movie does have a lot of Vietnam stuff in it. It's kind of the middle act. Let's talk about that stuff. You know, do what we came to do here today. I ain't no millionaire, son. No, no, no. Uh, yeah, I mean, all of those scenes, I think, if they don't hang on Forrest, they hang on Lieutenant Dan and Are your you? ability to respect, appreciate, and sometimes fear him. We love Lieutenant Dan when yeah. he first arrives. Yeah. He's exactly what you hope your lieutenant will be when you first arrive in Vietnam. Yeah. Lieutenant Dan is good in battle. He's good. He's good in the streets and in the sheets. (laughs) (laughs) You do not want to be a Forrest Gump in the sheets. That's for sure. He's the rare soldier that's there, like looking to fulfill his destiny of dying in battle, which is an interesting illustration of his character. He's also like, able to make Forrest and Bubba feel safe. Like, like Forrest's recollections of Vietnam contain one combat scene. Yeah. Like, everything else is just walking around. And I, I actually liked that about it, that Vietnam is portrayed as kind of boring for a long time. Because I imagine that was, that was true for a lot of soldiers. They got to Vietnam, they walked around for a year, or they sat on a military got base. Rained on. <laughs> got rained on, and they, they burned their poo in 50-gallon drums, and, uh, and then they went home. So that was kind of cool. And so the firefight, and particularly the way the firefight just erupted, and you could see the machine gun, the, the flashes of machine gun fire from, from way off on the horizon, you did get a feeling the of... Tracers coming in. Yeah, it, was, it felt very real, and it felt harrowing. Yeah, it, I mean, among the best Vietnam combat scenes we've seen, I think. The scenes of Forrest running through the jungle. Run through the jungle. <laughs> Had to get it in there. Uh, those scenes were, you know, the, the, the camera was moving on a what I presume to be some kind of track. And the, the foliage was really blurred. It was, it was unclear exactly what the geography was, where it, what was happening. I thought it was well, well shot. I did too. I, uh, yeah. I mean, I guess they do. Sh- they also show him like poo bearing himself into a, uh, a hole that he's presumably going to chase Viet Cong out of. Right. But it makes the case that Forrest Gump like might have gotten some confirmed kills in country. Yeah, he petted a lot of people to death over there. Right. I just wondered, like, I wondered at the choice to totally leave the trauma of that to the side. Like, he does not absorb any 
any trauma in this movie from anything, really. I guess I guess that's a, a character choice, and I'm sure there are people that are capable of going to combat and coming out the other side not damaged, but... Well, he, he notably did not run across country once returning home from Vietnam. He only does that in the grief of Jenny leaving him. Yeah. So he, I would argue that he does feel pain in, in that kind of way, but Vietnam is not one of the things that caused it for him. It's only Jenny. Yeah. Jenny's the only thing that can move his needle like that. And I That's don't such a that greatest sense. generation character trait rather than a baby. Because, I mean, like the whole thing about the Vietnam vets was that they started to talk about their trauma. Uh, there is the scene on the Lincoln Memorial where Abby Hoffman says, get up here, man, and tell your story. And he's been, he's joined this peace movement, uh, like a sit in because or he got in the wrong line. Right. Somebody was just like, come on, man. And he's there in his medal of honor, you know, in his uniform and the microphone is cut off right as he starts to, to, to speak to this group. And it stays yeah. off until he's like, and that's all I've got to say about that. And Cutting the mic was a real brave choice on the filmmaker's part. Well, yeah, because we have no idea what he said or what he what the, uh, the audience response would have been. That brings us to the fourth film paper we can write about this film, which is like, you have a chance to say something profound and your main character is... Muted. Yeah. And so we have no idea. We, we, we're also left in the dark. It was very meaningful to Abby Hoffman. Yeah, Abby Hoffman was like, thank you, man. You know, like, yeah. We, we know that he uh, isn't capable of processing the war to the point that he would be anti-war. Did you go and read the dialogue for that scene as it was written? No. It was, I think, three sentences. It was something like, uh, sometimes you go to war and you lose your legs. Sometimes you go and you lose your friend. That's all I have to say about that. Like, that was it. There was, I mean, even if you were to hear Forrest's words there, there's nothing profound about them. So that, that wouldn't have gotten it off of the National Review's best 25 conservative <laughs> movies of the last 25-year yeah. list. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel, like, uh, I feel like the missing dialogue in Lost in Translation still, still compels me. Yeah, that's also what Bill Murray said <laughs> in, uh, in her ear. How lucky were uh, Bubba and Forrest to get like such a paternal leader in Vietnam, though? Someone who was like more or less forgiving of their weird eccentricities. We don't see that a lot in Vietnam movies. And I wonder if that is also a cliche of other Vietnam yeah. War movies. Because there surely were officers that were both capable and nice. Yeah. Or sergeants even. Right. And we always see them as either capable and shitty or nice and and take a bullet. Yeah. In Casualties of War, Ving Rhames was nice enough until until Michael J. Fox made it a problem for him. Mm. And Elias right. in a Platoon is yeah. nice and also super hard, but the movie kills him. But in those movies and I think every other war movie that I can remember, the injured soldier on the battlefield isn't asked to be left there the way Lieutenant Dan is. That That is a new twist that this film gives the soldier. I think every time we see a wounded person on the battlefield, they're like, help me, save me, give me the morphine. But Lieutenant Dan wants to die. Because Lieutenant Dan has grown up in a family 
of Klansmen. Of, uh, <laughs> where it's where it, <laughs> it's just Klansmen all the way down. He's grown up in a family where the eldest son dies in war, and that's part of the family mythology that mm-hmm. he feels obligated to uphold. And that this is this been his destiny since he was five years old, and we don't look any deeper into that. He becomes embittered that he didn't die and turns into an alcoholic whoremonger. And that's an interesting little corner of this movie, Mm -hmm. Lieutenant Dan's character arc. He winds up being like almost baptized to become clean, right? When he falls off the boat. I I love that scene because Lieutenant Dan's like, hey, Forrest, I never thanked you for saving my life back there. And then like four beats later, he still isn't apologizing. And then he goes over the side. Well, when he what was- a big city apologized by, <laughs> apology by Lieutenant Dan. What a fucking asshole. When I watched this movie the first time and in this watch, both of those looked like Lieutenant Dan was suiciding. Yeah, yeah. It looked like he's going to J.V. Jones' locker. Yeah, like, hey, man. He's just going for a little swim. Just wanted to say thanks a lot. And then you're like, that's it for Lieutenant Dan. And he's not in the next scene. So you're really given some time to chew on that. Right. Turns out he's a business genius, though. He's able to figure out how to invest their shrimp money in the Apple Computer Corporation. You're probably more buoyant without legs, right? Interesting. Right, legs are not, mm. they don't have a lot of fat. Yeah. You, you don't have the use of them as flippers. No. no. But also, Lieutenant Dan, that's not an apology. <laughs> Any wife will tell you that. You try, you try stepping to your wife going, you know, I never apologized for <laughs> coming home late. <laughs> um, I don't know if you guys saw this. This was just... Uh, it was just on the internet, and I happened upon it before watching this movie, before we, we saw we were going to watch it. But someone did the calculation um, how much those Apple stocks would have been worth. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. It, it wasn't Apple stock that he could have bought on the market. This was an IPO. Right. He was a, an angel investor or something like that. And so he would have had to have bought a $100,000 stake in the company which at the time would have been 3% of the value of Apple, uh, which means that I think that he would have made $1.7 billion from it. Wow. And um, There are no good billionaires, and that would include Forrest Gump. Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, I'm sorry. The company was valued at that. By the end of the trading day, that first day, he would have been worth, Gump would have been worth $53 million. And if he didn't sell any shares, his stake would... Well, he gave half of the shares to Bubba's mom, remember? Right. But his stake now would be worth $18.9 billion, uh, Wow. If he, didn't, if, if he didn't sell. I have a moment of pedantry Do it. I would yeah. like to share. Let's see it. The letter from Apple Computer dated 1975 uses the Apple Garamond font below the logo. Uh, Apple did not use this font before the introduction of the Macintosh Garamond. in 1984. Until then, the logo featured the Mater Tectura font. The Garamond font itself was only designed in 1977. Wow. Was that one uh, submitted by our friends at Heffler & Co.? That's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, I love a font pedant. <laughs> I have I have a moment of pedantry, which mm. which is that you notice something wrong with this movie too. <laughs> I did, which is that once Gump is awarded the Medal of Honor, 
The protocol for a Medal of Honor winner is that every single person in the military salute him, including like the general of the army, because you're saluting the medal, right? Oh. And uh, if you're <laughs> like, a, like, hey, my eyes are up here. Yeah, that's right. But if you're a Medal of Honor winner, you get the you get the salute from every military person you encounter. And not a single person in this film salutes him, including the guy that comes and gives him his dispatch, his, uh, his discharge papers. Like he, the, the sergeant or whatever comes in, he's like, you know, th- kind of throws them at him and is like, you're out. It's like, he, that guy may be playing ping pong right now, but he's a medal of honor winner. And there's like, heavy, yeah. there's heavy protocol about that. And I didn't even see on his uniform the Medal of Honor ribbon. And I'm not talking about the, the choker, but like the ribbon on his ribbons. Would they put that on at the ceremony or would that be something that he wouldn't have yet because he's just had the ribbon put around his neck? But he, we see him in uniform after that. Oh, and, oh we do. Okay. Uh, like several times. And, and he, is not, he is not sporting it. I think the Purple Heart is the highest ribbon on his... I mean, don't don't get, don't yell at me about that, Internet. I don't know for sure, but <laughs> I don't see it on his ribbons. That's thematically so consistent with how Forrest is treated for the entire film, right? No matter what success he achieves in any area or, or what accidental, historically significant moment he trips and falls himself toward, like, his status in life never changes, like, he's never afforded greater respect for doing anything. He's always treated like Forrest Gump throughout. And I think that's crucial in in how we approach his character and how we approach the film. Like, he must always be an underdog. Right. He must never win totally. The second he gets that Apple letter, the next scene is him getting a job cutting the lawn at the right. at the football field. And all of that is is it's handed to us as though Forrest is making those choices and now he has financial independence and so he can. No one ever, Lieutenant Dan does not get Forrest a house in town. Lieutenant Dan, Forrest, he shows up, he shows up at the beginning of the film in that white Rain Man suit with with a clean shirt. So we know at least he's, somebody is caring for him or he's, Maybe able to care for himself to Are pick you out his own like suit. The first scenes of the, the film? first scene, yeah. But he doesn't. Uh, but no one ever says like, "Hey, Forrest, you're a millionaire now. You don't have to live in your mom's old house." He. It seems like that's what he wants. He needs the security. He needs the constancy. One bit of trivia about that house is that that's the house from the Patriot. What Forrest's house Whoa. is the house from the Patriot. Isn't that wild? Damn. Come on. Yeah. Where's the film paper about that? <laughs> the show with the most papers, Forrest Gump. Yeah. So what does this say? What is it as a war movie? Does it say anything about Vietnam? I think it kind of makes the case that Vietnam changed his trajectory. It doesn't take it any further than that. You know, like the thing that was important about Vietnam was that he met Bubba and Lieutenant Dan and like, I guess, absorbed everything one would need to know about running a shrimp boat from Bubba. Right. <laughs> That's another thing that really strains credulity is that he buys the boat and then like knows how to operate it. <laughs> well, it do- yeah, it doesn't make being a shrimp boat captain seem like that hard of a job. It doesn't make anything seem like that hard of a job. No, you just have to make it through one hurricane. This movie doesn't make ping pong look that hard either. Right. If Forrest can do it. 
Forrest is, is not accorded any additional respect for being not just a veteran, but a, but a medal of honor winner. So the, the war doesn't bring him any, um, it's, it's really like, it's the capitalism that brings him any gifts. He never seems to get famous either. Like he's on, he's, you know, he's in the medal of honor ceremony. He meets a couple of presidents. He's stupendously wealthy. He's on the cover of fortune magazine. He's being covered by the news while he, yeah. While he runs across the country, but like nobody recognizes him or knows who he is, even though he's been in all these like pivotal moments in history. Right. But still, it would seem like his polymathic qualities, you know, as soon as the as soon as the newspapers pick up that he basically invented the the sport of running. Right. Um, that he also won the Medal of Honor would be. That would be the headline. I, you know, Medal of Honor is one of those things that it's right at the top of your Wikipedia entry. It's, it's kind of like, you know, it, it, it absolutely is. It's even better than Oscar winner, right? So once you do it, everything that happens to you from then on is prefaced with that award. I, I think one of my one of the things that left a bad taste in my mouth about this film is it starts the, the very rare MIGAT. Possibly <laughs> get that run going. <laughs> how many? How many roads must a man walk down before you can call him a megot winner? Mm. That's uh, that's the worst strip club song, right? Blowing in the wind, the acoustic version, especially. <laughs> she is naked behind that guitar. Not gonna get many dollar bills on the rail doing that song. But the way the, the she way doesn't this, want the dollar bills. She wants to. She wants to be recognized as a folk singing cover artist. But the way this movie like uh, devalues the Medal of Honor bummed me out. Yeah. That it's just a it's just a thing and it's never it's not accorded any special significance. And Jenny I'm, puts it on and she gets saluted everywhere she yeah, goes. Yeah, that's right. She gets saluted <laughs> at, the, at the hippie parties. Yeah, I mean, Forrest doesn't value it himself in that regard by giving it to her so easily, right? And that uh, that seems believable, yeah. but that that the rest of the world would, would say like, would I don't know, would get would, guys would be buying him lunches in, at lunch counters. Right. Even if you portrayed him as not understanding what was happening, still it would... It would locate the film in the world. Yeah, it's funny how like the historical moments aren't the only thing neutralized. It's the idea of wealth and privilege and celebrity also that's totally tamped down. Like yeah. Forrest gets rich and like like the ugliest kind of rich people, he immediately dismisses wealth as a thing that changes you or a wealth that can be used to do good. He's like, he says something that his mom told him about, like, you know, anything above your means is just window dressing anyway. But he has the chance to change people's lives with that money, like his black housekeeper, like Lieutenant Dan, like like a whole bunch of people. And, he, and it's cool that he only changes Bubba's mom's life. Like, I'm with that. But he could have done... Like, he could have given money to Jenny. He could have done a lot with it, and he doesn't. And that's, like, that is so, that is such a bullseye for what this film represents when we talk about the sort of person that would like this film and the the type of filmmaking that lionizes the perfection of, of baby, baby boomer culture. Like, Forrest got his. Yeah. And that's good enough. Yeah. 
Well, and his housekeeper, who we are shown in montage, her family has always been, you know, all the way back to plantation yeah. time, has always, they've always worked as servants, yeah. house servants. Then we're, we see her being served by a white woman, the same kind of shrimp etouffee. Mm-hmm. And, uh, which is like, like the racial comeuppance that she deserves, but also somehow like totally, totally overlooks the, the pain of generational poverty and racism. Well, because it's only there for the audience to feel good about itself and to be like, well, that's the American story, right? That everything is better now that we are, cause this again, 94, right? This is happening. Very like post-racism idea of how racism works this is the post-racial society thing that we see in all these movies we watch from this era where we're all being flattered by the idea that uh, that's all it takes right Uh, like you get a check mom faints and the next scene they're living in a you know it's like a, a beverly hillbilly's house somewhere where you know all the past crimes are are erased by application of money it's such a magic trick that this film does because like all of this is out there on the table. Like, like you get a sense of all of this, but by neutralizing every emotion or every feeling in the film besides nostalgia, like you can't even get it up to hate Forrest Gump for, for all of these <laughs> bad decisions. Like we're really ripping on this film a lot, but I can tell you that I didn't hate it and I didn't hate the experience of watching it and I didn't hate Forrest himself. It's a weird, like, like numb feeling that pervades it. When all you get is that nostalgia and nothing else, I can't remember ever seeing a film like this before. Well, we're talking about uh, throughout the 80s, we as a nation, and by that I mean America, we were wrestling with Vietnam again, right? But, but it was 15 years after the war ended. Some say the wrestling never stopped. <laughs> We wrestled with it through the late 80s. What was the deal? What, you know, what, how did this affect us? It was brutal. What we actually lost. And then Clinton reestablished diplomatic relations with Vietnam. And there was maybe culturally, you could argue that we felt like we'd come full circle. And in being friends with Vietnam again, we, uh, we washed our hands somehow. Do we get to win this time? (laughs) (laughs) And by 94, are we really in a place where we are post-Vietnam trauma and we get to just put it in as set dressing for the music, basically? Like, is Vietnam just just a thing that makes Forrest rich? Is Vietnam just a thing that we as citizens of the United States kind of put in the same category as Forrest's Ku Klux Klan granddad? Uh, we don't have to, we're, we're sad about it, but we're just as sad about the peace movement. Uh, it's really, it's both sidesing us through that whole thing. Yeah. Both sides were bad and now it's 1994 and we can just cartoonify it. Well, I mean, it's both sidesing it, but it's also punishing one side and right. not the other. That's right. We got a bit of a film paper here for a movie set in a 94 that imagines that it is exists in a post-racial society. The cinematography is incredibly bad when it comes to exposing the faces of the black actors in this movie. Perpetually in shadow. You can't see any detail in their faces. Like, and it, and it's like when we meet Bubba, he's on the bus and there's a light source behind him. So like you could maybe forgive it there, but then 
and and he's like our first you know black character that we spend any time with but he's he's hard to see in basically every shot and all of the other black characters that is true of as well is this film widely known as one that's guilty of that because i know that is a thing it's a thing i mean i i i don't know that it's widely cited as a, an example of that but it, it was certainly on my mind as i watched it i think also maybe partly because we had just watched a movie set in inside a tank that was super dark yet you can see everybody's expression when you need to the like the idea that this movie has all these black characters that are you know mainly there as props to show that Forrest has no prejudice in his heart despite coming from a a clan family uh you cannot see them they're they're almost silhouetted in every shot is this film shot really flat i mean it feels like a dream and i'm wondering how much of that is in the cinematography you're asking someone who watched this on a seat back this is the one time i've seen a film in worse fidelity than you have right i mean i was watching it on my phone <laughs> while i was in the bathtub uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, this this cinematographer on this is uh, Don Burgess, and he is still super active. Like he shot Aquaman, he shot Spider Man, he shot a bunch of man movies. Uh, huge movies over the years. I don't know how you can be the director of photography on The Polar Express, a movie that was computer generated diarrhea. <laughs> I, I guess he has he has worked with actors of color. Did the cinematography on 42, the Jackie Robinson movie. Hmm. So he must have he must have figured this out eventually. But I mean, Zemeckis is a boomer. He was born in 52. And so he was 40 years old, basically 38 years old making this movie. Mostly a boomer cast with the exception of Robin Wright, who was 10 years younger than everybody else. But but portraying someone who was meant to be the same age, almost exactly the same age, which is kind of curious. Yeah. What do you make of Forrest's relationship with Jenny, especially at the end? Like a lot of people, when they quote the movie, they quote that part that goes, I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. And seeing that scene for the first time since the film came out, like I remember being affected by him saying that then, But the part that really got me this time, and I was surprised to actually feel anything for this movie at any point, but toward the end, the line that he says before that is, uh, why don't you love me, Jenny? And that is such a unique thing to say. Like, I don't remember, that's not a thing that anyone says to anyone else. I say it all the time. Incels say it all the time. Is Forrest Gump an incel? Oof. Here's the thing we here's the thing we don't see Jenny do, which is that the day that Forrest becomes a millionaire, Jenny reappears. Yeah. But she has sex with him once and then leaves. And the Jenny that we've been introduced through introduced to and watched go through her life arc. I think when she shows up when Forrest is a millionaire, there's an opportunity to show Jenny as an opportunist. And yet, having impregnated herself on him, 
Do you think it would have been funny if uh, Forrest fucked Jenny sounding like the school superintendent did? <laughs> like <an> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's all he knows. It's yeah. the, only, the only sex he understands. Yeah. But then she leaves and raises Hallie Joe Osment. That is not how you say that name. <laughs> by, <laughs> by herself for five years. Give him a break. He learned how to pronounce it by going on a YouTube right. website. Uh, Hallie Joe Osment. <laughs> What's his name? Haley Joel Osment? Haley Joel Osment. I think it's Haley Joel. Haley Joel Osment. Uh, anyway, she goes and raises him for five years on a waitress's salary, knowing that his father is a multimillionaire living in a giant house. And that is, that's meant to give us some, that's meant to give Jenny some like character that I feel like even I wouldn't have. Well, Jenny knows that Forrest isn't going to share his wealth. He's going to hoard it. Really? That's the message of the film. I feel, I feel like Jenny would walk into that situation and say, Forrest, we have separate bedrooms. And Forrest would be like, all right, Jenny. And then she would say, we're going <laughs> to... Wow, the rare impression <laughs> by John Rodden. <laughs> <laughs> and then she'd fill the refrigerator with corned beef. I mean, maybe I'm projecting here. But that's the life that you want. What the hey? Why the heck is she working as a waitress? Yeah. And then she comes back and does Jenny die of AIDS? Is that what we are? That is the implication. Yeah. The sequel says that she dies of hep C. Really? Yeah. What? From her, from her junkie years. Yeah. That's, that's not canon. It's what I read. I do research on this show. It feels, yeah. It feels like uh, it feels like this is AIDS, uh, an unknown virus. You could only think it was AIDS in 1994. Yeah, yeah, and, and that that was I think still during a period when culturally in America we, it, you could still say that AIDS was punishment. Everyone's grandparents in the theater watching in '94 were like, "But she wasn't gay." Right. <laughs> but it is punishment for promiscuity. Right. Yeah. And drug right. drug use. Yeah. And intravenous drug use. Yeah. yeah. And you could you could still make a movie where where one of the characters like got her comeuppance all the way. Right. For everything. I mean if it's not AIDS, it's a hurricane, right? Right. She died of being a slut. Uh it's another instance of someone dying or sacrificing or being hurt that ultimately benefits Forrest because he gets to care for the son he didn't know he had. That He's fucking that kid up big time. The one thing I wrote down that I wanted to interrogate is um, in the DC scenes when he's wandering around with his, uh, with his medal on, the SDS guy... Asks Jenny, who's this baby killer? Right. Or something like that. Right. And I've read like a lot of different stuff about about that. And I feel like I'm not sure what to believe anymore because there is this very pervasive popular depiction of the treatment of veterans as baby killers by by the civilians back home that is you know, this movie is advancing it. You know, Adam's beloved First Blood series is advancing it. But I've also read that a lot of that has been, like, greatly overblown, both in the media and in popular culture. Is that really a thing that, like, a 
a war protester would say to a soldier that has just spoken on stage next to Abby Hoffman. Yeah, I mean, they, they run through every cliche, right? And that was... And he's in like the German uniform jacket. Like. Yeah, that, that, that feels like something that hadn't been refuted yet. And I think you're right. I've read that same thing, that the number of instances where a soldier was actually disrespected getting off the airplane or spat on or all that stuff that we were led to believe was commonplace and somewhat led to believe that by the the military culture that came in the wake of that you know the pride is back culture uh any anytime the anytime uh, the army or of or veterans organization can portray themselves as victims of the culture now uh they jump at the chance because seeing themselves as victims really comports with their self-identity as people making the ultimate sacrifice. Boy, up until this point, I thought this episode was going to make our show very popular. And now, <laughs> now, the, now I'm ready to lose that, that hope. Veterans groups are going to write in. Uh, and that, you know, that's another, that's another kind of thing that makes this movie so popular with the national review crowd. It flatters them that hippies are, the hippies no have no sense of of um, honor, right? Right. I mean, it it does not feel like you can make a Vietnam film without landing on one side or the other of a very specific line in the culture war. Yeah, right. I mean, there are movies that do it, right? But it, but if Platoon had taken Charlie Sheen and and done 10 minutes of Sheen walking through an airport and out into the world, what hmm. would Charlie Sheen have encountered? Running in to his next plane like OJ in a Hertz ad? <laughs> <laughs> what would we, what would Platoon in the voice of that movie yeah. have shown us? I think it wouldn't have done the spit on a soldier thing because its, its tone was more sophisticated than that. Although his or Oliver Stone's first film was a st was his student film of him as a veteran walking around New York City, but being personally alienated, not like shunned. There was a little bit of that when Sheen gets on the helicopter and Jennifer Grey is sitting next to him mm -hmm. on the flight out of uh -huh. out of camp. <laughs> he's in like, his leather jacket. Yeah. And he's just like, "What are you doing later?" Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Shana. <laughs> Before we go, I just want to share a few of the casting choices not made in this film. Oh. Play a little bit of fantasy casting couch. It was oh, Stallone? no, I shouldn't call it that. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, I have a fantasy ca casting couch. Zip. <laughs> the author of the book uh, on, on which this film is based had a very clear idea of who Forrest Gump was going to be, and his first pick was John Goodman. He thought John, wow. he wrote it with John Goodman in mind. I thought that was interesting. But uh, Wait, let's just take a second and think about this movie with John Goodman. Yeah. I, I don't know. I kind of like it better. I'm not sure why. I'd like to see. <laughs> I just want to see I the wish I knew test. that, Forrest Gump. <laughs> uh, John Travolta was the original choice to play the title role and passed on it. it he admitted that as being a major uh, career regret for him. John Travolta. Travolta. Could have had a second jumbo jet if he'd, if he'd taken that role. Bill Murray and Chevy Chase, also in the running for Forrest Gump. Whoa, imagine this as, a, as like a Chevy Chase movie. 
I can't. I really can't. Like, you can imagine John Goodman sitting on the park bench doing the forest thing. I cannot imagine Chevy doing that. He just couldn't sit still long enough. He's so coked up. Was this movie? Yeah, was this movie a comedy? Did it play as a comedy in '94? Did people laugh all the way through it? I know there's a kind of person that likes to laugh at mentally challenged people. You know, there is an audience for a film where somebody's just like, I don't know how to, you know, like that. They're just going to laugh at every instance. I kind of feel like Zemeckis is a genre of his own because like is Back to the Future a comedy? Yes. No, I, I don't think it is, but I think there are a lot of funny parts in it. Every single character in Back to the Future is hilarious. Crispin Glover, hilarious. Uh, Dr. Doc Ock or whatever, hilarious. Yeah. But at the same time, there's not that many jokes, you know? Right. Why are you wearing a life preserver? That's a funny joke. I am your density. I I say that once a week. I think there's a tonal relationship that is familiar there. But I don't think this or that is a comedy. Jenny's character arc is not funny. But, But Bubba, I mean, that lip, that lower lip on Bubba was a prosthetic. He need, They wanted that lip so bad. McKelty Williamson couldn't get work after this movie because they thought that's what his face looked like. Why the lip? What, is, what does that do except make that a comedy character? Sort of lip that sells itself. <laughs> I'm sorry, Ben. I tried to sneak in a heat line and I was... Do you have a better, yeah. better way to do that? But all through this, I was waiting for an opportunity to say, we don't got to sell shrimp because them kind of shit sell themselves. But That's better. It's better. And it's not. It's not better because I didn't. I didn't find the. I didn't find a place to put it. David Allen Greer, Ice Cube, Dave Chappelle, all offered the role of Bubba, Whoa. but turned it down. I want to. I want to. Tupac wanna, auditioned for uh, it. Yeah, Tupac Shakur auditioned for this. Didn't get it. I want to see Chevy Chase and Ice Cube <laughs> in this film. <laughs> <laughs> We already saw that movie in Cops and Robertsons. <laughs> wow. I mean, of all the choices, probably we made the best one casting-wise, right? Yeah. Yeah, Tom Hanks. I mean, I think it works best with Hanks. Yeah. Didn't he get an Oscar for Philadelphia the year before? Back to back. This is this is Hanks at his peak. This is Hanks that can do no wrong. He was a comedic before actor. Before he got canceled. Did Hanks never got canceled <laughs> between the recording of this and this being released, we got a couple months. A it could 50, happen. Fifty-fifty chance. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Once Mister Rogers comes out, it's over for him. <laughs> <laughs> What's their hot take going to be? Really bold choice by Hanks. <laughs> <laughs> Mister Rogers wasn't actually that racist. Tom Hanks just wanted to put that into the movie. <laughs> I was at an Emmy Awards party where Tom Hanks won an Emmy and taped it to the hood of his car on his way as he left the party. I uh, I didn't actually see the, but I was there at the at the party itself. And he uh, had to remove the Rolls Royce hood ornament and replace it with the Emmy. Yeah, I think I think, <laughs> I think it was a Lincoln, but yeah, uh-huh. right. He had to. Well, he yeah, he pried it off and turned it into a necklace for his son. Right. He pushed the button in the on the dashboard that made the Rolls Royce thing lower down into the car, and then he stuck the Emmy on top of it. But that's the kind of man Tom Hanks is. He <laughs> he DGF 
Oh, DGAF. That's what he does. He degaffs. I think I like that about I him. I think too. that's one of his most appealing properties. I do too. I like it about him too. I like Tom Hanks, and I cannot lie. He is not what is wrong with this movie. But do we like the film? There's only one way to find out. That's in the construction of a custom rating system that I designed based off something that I see in the film. We really get out in the world in Forrest Gump, and we see a lot of things, a lot of things that would qualify for such a rating system. So there's a leitmotif in the film that goes like, every time there is a still photograph of Forrest Gump, his eyes are closed. Did you notice that? No. Like in the standees for famous ping pong man Forrest Gump, his eyes are closed in that in that cutout <laughs> of him. And in every photograph of him in the film, his eyes are closed. And that's neat. I like a cookie like that. That would have lent itself nicely to a film that does what it does to historical events. Like how many closed eyes... <laughs> Would you give Forrest Gump? Uh-huh. But instead, I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to go with um, Forrest really likes things that are sweet. And I think that is in keeping with the, with what this film is trying to do. Like, nothing bad ever happened uh, from 1960 to 1985 in this film. Like, everything is cool and nice and comfortable. Comfortable especially. Comfortable and free. And... When Forrest is at the White House, he is given the opportunity to drink just as many Dr. Peppers as he pleases. Love it. Dr. Pepper is a delicious beverage. It's a beverage I wish sponsored this show. Are you a pepper? I'm a pepper. I'm a pepper. Are you a pepper too? I am a pepper too. What about you, Ben? Love Dr. Pepper. He drinks a dozen Dr. Peppers and, uh, and is just so ready to go to the bathroom after... But watching this movie feels like drinking too many Dr. Peppers. It is just sweet on top of sweet on top of sweet until you're just full. Full and leaving the theater. So on a scale of one to five Dr. Peppers, we will rate Forrest Gump. I feel like we've really taken the bats to this thing. And I'm so I'm so confused come rating time because like I still can't say that I hated the film. I'm really tortured by it, though. It's a film I... I never really want to see again because there's just nothing new to interrogate here. It's so shallow in every conceivable way. I'm shocked we were able to get such a, a fun and argumentative conversation about it. I didn't think there would there'd be much for us to go over. But as it was, there was. It's sad, and we've talked about this a bunch in other war films that we didn't like. It's sad when a film has an opportunity to say something and chooses not to. It's sad when a war film especially has a chance to say something meaningful about a conflict and chooses not to. I think Forrest Gump misses on both of those. Not a single Vietnamese person in the movie. No. All right. Wait, what was Lieutenant Dan's wife? Potentially Vietnamese. This was her only film credit. Did you know that? (laughs) Really? Yeah, I looked her up. I was like, she's got to be in something else, right? (laughs) No, one credit. Known for Forrest Gump. Wow. She is an interior designer, I think. She pivoted uh, into another career. Mm. Anyway, it's weird to watch a movie that is so clearly a fable, but without any moral. Like, you come out of the film like, what was it really trying to say? I have no idea. I don't want to keep watching it to find out, though. It was bubbly and effervescent, but without really any point to it. But empty calories, right? Yeah. So... This film was 
worse than average. I'm going to give it uh, two bottles of Dr. Pepper. It, it, I had assumed it would hold up in some way, either in its uh, ability to put Forrest in these situations. Like Technically, I thought it would hold up, and it didn't even do that. So yeah, two for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass my bottle opener to you, Ben. <laughs> I feel very similar to you. I I think uh, I re- I really walked away from from watching the movie just wondering what I was to make of it, and I wondered why it was such a colossal hit. I mean, I think that I don't know. Like, I, maybe when I'm you know forty eight and somebody makes a movie that panders this hard to my generation, I will be just as much of you know, just as receptive an audience to it as my parents and, and the baby boom was to this film. But I, it, it's hard for me to imagine. It's hard for me to imagine not feeling like kind of insulted because it's, it's almost just a string of fond reminiscences of, of history rather than, you know, it's, it's like uh Dane Cook as a comic gets, you know, it, criticized a lot for not having jokes so much as just like hey like remember this remember this like references rather than jokes and i think to some extent you know like say whatever you want about him but i i think sometimes that's fair and sometimes it's a little mean-spirited but this kind of feels like what that criticism sets up which is that it's it's more just a series of references like oh yeah i remember that i remember that time like in saying nothing about it, it becomes the you know one of the best twenty five conservative movies of the last twenty five years. Like in leaving out commentary, it becomes something that the National Review is going to love, and I think that that's kind of where where I part ways with the movie, and 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 I think is kind of like exactly what my criticism of conservatism is is like. It is like looking back and and wanting to look at it through rose-colored glasses and wanting to look at the past as as having been better than the present or or more aspirational in some way and also doing nothing on your way to success right it does a great job of being entertaining somehow in spite of that yeah. you know it goes a lot of places and touches a lot of a lot of events in a way that does keep it interesting and, and make surprising choices along the way too. Like why, why ping pong? I don't know. <laughs> but somehow that was like really fun to watch, like really fun to watch Tom Hanks pretend to be a world-class ping pong player. We all like the performances, right? Like I, I like yeah. I thought the acting and it was strong and good. Super strong, super good. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think I'm going to come right, uh, right in at two. Dr. Peps. I'm just trying to imagine the film that panders to Ben's generation. Uh, it's been made. It's called Kids. <laughs> I'm trying to picture. I think the, the soundtrack would be like, what, Chumbawamba and Backstreet Boys and Hanson and stuff? Third Eye Blind? I get knocked down, but I get up again is a great message for a movie. I don't think that soundtrack would get 12 million downloads on Spotify or it would, and the artists would all receive 13 cents for their trouble. <laughs> I think that this movie was made for its time. And when I think about 1994, we're in the middle of the Clinton administration. We are now in a post 
Soviet environment for the first time, right? We're only a couple of years in to the fact that the Russians are no longer a threat. We're in this world where maybe it's the end of history, the kind of beginning of this idea that we're in a post-racial society. We feel like we've dealt with Vietnam and 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 through a process of R- Rambo and Chuck Norris winning it for us again and <laughs> then a, you know some some also deeper looks at it so that we realize that we lost but it's okay. I mean there was a movie called 1969 starring Winona Ryder that came out in the late 80s. That was one of the first nice. That there was one of the first uh, that I saw that just full on did this. Crosby, Stills, and Nash uh, starts to play as the camera pans, you know, as the camera flies away on a helicopter, and we watch a Volkswagen bus drive across a bridge as they drive across. You know, just like complete cartoon of of the '60s. But yeah, by by '94, what did we want as an American culture when we went to the movies? Just something that didn't hurt our feelings, that made us feel like everything had worked out. And people just fell all over themselves about this thing. And, you know, I, and I feel like watching it now, we see through it and we're not that thrilled about the baby boomers now, kind of for the first time in my life, because I grew up in the shadow of them in the shadow of their music and in the shadow of their, what they felt like was their accomplishment in ending the war in Vietnam and liberating America from the suit and tie um, conformism of the fifties and giving us all these wonderful things, casual Friday and tambourines and those are the top two marijuana. And then also, you know, a return to conservatism and wall street capitalism. And it's only now that the, that the millenniums are so mad at their parents and the world that they wrought that we're getting a strong critique of the boomers because the generation X critique of, of the boomers was just, it was passive, but we didn't have an answer we weren't a big enough generation. And we just, we were, we, we were exhausted at, at 17 years old. We already felt like there was just, we were so tired. And it's nice. It's nice to look back now and have a real criticism of that generation that they can't just smother with credence, which they did for so long. They just they just smothered any argument. John Fogarty's not your human shield. Well, it was for a lot. He was for a long time. Not anymore. So we're looking at it now through a 2019 lens. This movie is 25 years old. When this movie came out, 1970 was 25 years before. Like we are the same distance from Gump as Gump was from the era depicted. Um, That blows my mind. Yeah. But I agree with both of your critiques of it. I think we've, I think we've talked about everything in this movie that, that drove me crazy. I just also brought to it the feeling that all this hagiography of the era and the way this movie just just kind of paints it also felt very 94 and I hated the boomers in 94. So I give this movie two flat Dr. Peppers. Mm. 
Oh, no. Somebody left them open all night? Someone left the Dr. Peppers out in the rain, and I don't think that I can take it. <laughs> it's the magic of a Dr. Pepper, though. Even flat. Even flat, they got a little Not bite. Too bad. They're a little crispy. Yeah. And I don't think they were out all night. I just feel like somebody, op- somebody at the White House didn't want to open each Dr. Pepper for each each time Gump went back to the bar. So they just popped the lids and they sat there fizzing. I'm going to tell you something about my feelings about Dr. Pepper. Five Dr. Peppers is what I rate Dr. Pepper. Agreed. I don't think you can you can ding Dr. Pepper a single Dr. Pepper. Not at all. Delicious. But I agree also that this movie was distracting, at least. You know, you could put it on and every time like the, the California Raisins started to sing, heard it on the grapevine, get up and shake it a little bit. If you don't look at it too hard. <laughs> what are you shaking? Your raisin. Oh, oh no. Shake your box of raisins. All you Beyonce's and Lucy Lou, get on the floor. Give me some sugar. I am your neighbor. Shake it like a box of raisins. <laughs> you ever have a, a, a root beer float with Dr. Pepper and I, not root beer? I have. That is a, that's a tasty beverage. Thank, have you ever had one with Fanta? No. It's like it tastes Whoa. like an orange, uh, like a like an orange sickle. Let me tell you, I'm giving Fanta three bottles of Dr Pepper Ouch. as a rating. Oh, I think Dr I... Pepper's a superior drink. I had one with maple flavored ice cream and ginger ale one time. It was Ooh. really tremendous. Wow. Ooh. I'm gonna give Fanta four and a half Dr Peppers. Huh. I'm giving it one Dr Pepper. Fuck Fanta. You like Fanta? We just lost our entire no. European yeah, audience. It's over. <laughs> It's over. It's over for us. We'll never tour in Europe. <laughs> I'm there for you, Fanta drinkers. Mm. Uh, was your guy a Fanta drinker, though? Um, my guy was the feather. <laughs> Come on. The feather. The feather introduces us to this movie. We follow the feather just like we follow the trolley in. Or, you know, the, the feather basically goes over Mr. Rogers' neighborhood mm-hmm. <laughs> for no reason. The feather lands at Gump's feet. He picks it up and he puts it in his Curious George book. Interesting that that's his favorite book, given what an incurious man he is. Whoa, we yeah, got a sixth paper. That's a nice paper. <laughs> Here it comes. But Curious George is also someone who stumbles through life, finds himself consistently in one goofball situation after another and he always failing up the, the curious george story he always is rescued and it never he ends up uh, he's everybody's friend even though halfway through the story he's screwed it all up the yeah. feather at, at its at, as it introduces us into the film it seems like the feather is going to be some kind of narrative device that we follow the feather right he's going to open that book the feather's going to blow out we're going to follow the feather to something else right that is the whole reason you introduce a thing like a feather at the top of a movie. They built so much of the marketing for this movie around that feather, too. I remember seeing that feather everywhere. The freaking feather. And yet the feather plays absolutely no role in this movie at all. And in fact, when the feather falls out of the book, it's not resonant of anything. We've been through 40, or we've been to 25 years of, of, uh, of Gump's life. The feather was not with him. The feather was only in that book for a couple of years. The feather didn't make any of this journey. The feather is just us. We start the movie and we end. The feather <laughs> enters the movie and it exits the movie. That's pretty great. <laughs> feather remembers to take its 
the popcorn bucket and soda. <laughs> That's right. And throw it out on the way out of the theater. The feather keeps the floor neat beneath its feet. It's the new movie mm. mess bag. I don't like it, but I have to accept it. I know. It's not right. Uh, my guy is the nurse at the bus stop in the very beginning who leaves before the film really gets going. Kind of like I wish <laughs> I'd been able to. She is the type of person that is my type of person who just wants to fucking sit on a bench and not be talked at by a stranger. She she really sticks to that magazine. She does. I thought for sure she would bend into becoming curious the way everyone else who sits on that park bench does. And maybe for a moment before she catches her bus, there's a moment where she's half paying attention. But everyone else skips their bus when it shows up. And she gets on. Mostly to get away from Forrest. As you would. And I like that about her. Yeah. I read somewhere that uh, her character <laughs> was based on Rosa Parks as a person whose feet hurt and Rosa Parks was someone who who mentioned that like one of her reasons for not moving seats on the bus was that her feet hurt and that was like a little a little just you know a little wink and a nod to Rosa Parks I just from wanna, the makers of Forrest Gump. I just want to punish them for that. Yeah yeah pretty rough but anyway because of who she is. National Review thought that that was really <laughs> astute and cool of yeah. them. <laughs> But uh, but whether or not she is Rosa Parks, her treatment of Forrest in her scenes was great. And so she's my guy. Your guy is proximate Ro- Rosa Parks. Yeah. Yeah. Beat that, Ben. Uh, my guy is Dick Cavett. <laughs> one of the, uh... <laughs> That's great. One of the only people in those uh, in those scenes that are remade old television who actually you know came and filmed his stuff. Cool. And uh, I love that he just seems dumbfounded and not sure what to do with the fact that he has Forrest Gump on his show. Like the idea that a a uh, television talk show interviewer would just be like, huh, yeah, that's uh, that's really something. <laughs> It's so funny to me. The fact that Dick, Dick Cavett in 1994 can portray himself in 1974, right. and it's just like, yeah. I know. He's got that Paul Red thing going yeah. on. Yeah, and uh, I feel like he knows what's wrong with the movie and put it into his portrayal of himself somehow. Great guy. Great guy. That is a great guy. Not many opportunities to choose Dick Cavett in the Friendly Fire My Guy selection. He doesn't show up in a lot of war <laughs> no. Yeah. Shoot. Gotta take them when you can find them. Great job. Do you guys want to pick our next war movie? Yes. All right, I got my little 120-sided die. Let me create a little corral for it. Adam, you endorse uh, my die roll technique, don't you? Of course I do. All right, here we go. Forty-nine. We're at forty-nine. 49 is a Catherine Bigelow-directed movie from 2012, Zero Dark Thirty. Oh, I'm so excited by this. Did I put this on the list? You did put this on the list. That's good. I have not seen this movie since it came out. Me neither. I wonder if it holds up. Let's hope it holds up. Ever since I saw Spy Game, I've been like well-disposed to movies that show a raid like that. And I feel like uh, feel like it it is a a great raid movie. So it 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 got uh, interrogated pretty heavily in um, yeah. in its time. 
for misrepresenting. Got a lot of reading to do. Yeah, misrepresenting uh, the 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 hunt for Bin Laden. So yeah, this should be fun. Seems like it shows torture as having as having played a crucial role in that, and that was that was a lie, right? It was debunked that they ever got any meaningful intel from torturing anybody, which I think is pretty clear when you go into torture that the conventional wisdom over the years of scholarship it's pretty clear that torture does not do anything but but the bush administration retweets are not endorsements so that's not uh (laughs) we're gonna we're gonna watch this thing and review it listen we are against torture here at friendly fire we take the torture for you pro dr pepper anti-torture that's the friendly fire promise that's right Well, that will be next week on Friendly Fire. We'll leave it with Rob's from here. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Benjamin Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art? is by Nick Dittmore. Friendly Fire is made possible by the support of our listeners, like you. And you can make sure that the show continues by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate. As an added bonus, you'll receive our monthly Pork Chop episode, as well as all the fantastic bonus content for Maximum Fun. If you'd like to discuss the show online, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. We'll see you next week. We know that, uh, I almost said Trump. We know that Dump, Grumpf, no, what's his name? Trump, Trump. Who are you talking about? Gump, Gump, Gump. We know that Gump had... Wow. <laughs> Hold up both arms, John. <laughs> did, did Freud hit you in the face with a baseball bat or something? MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.